It's Time for Truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's Time for Truth exists to glorify God through the edification of His saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I'm your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I am joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Well, greetings, conversationalists all across the fruited plain. Just a little Rush Limbaugh-ism for you there. Missed the old uh, the old guy. But uh, welcome once again to another episode of the podcast, wherever you may be and whenever you may be listening. We want to thank you for making us part of your day, and we hope that you are enjoying listening as much as we enjoy recording these podcasts. Uh, this is uh, fun for us, and we enjoy doing this, so we want to thank you for listening. And before we get into our topic for today, as usual, Jim, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm thinking about Rush and how he would be reacting to Trump being exonerated in the report that came out, the Durham report. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about those reports, too, that bothers me is how many years does it take to 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 lay an egg? I mean, four, apparently, apparently. And you got to wait for the Justice Department to be in the wrong hands so that you go, wah, 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 nothing's going to happen. And then nothing's going to happen. Right. It's really astonishing. Uh, but yeah, the report's out there, and it's interesting. Even even Jake Tapper, our our CNN newsworthy anchor, yeah, stated that this is a partial exoneration for Trump. Yeah, well, and then move on, and right. uh, and and it's safe to it's safe to say that because right. again, what's going to happen? A whole lot of nothing. Nothing. And that's the way these things go. And I we I remember seeing that type of stuff. I think it was even the H W Bush uh, era where it was like, I, I we see what's going on here, and then nothing ends up happening. And uh, I, I just, it, th- those things are, are frustrating to me. Yeah. And to me, it's an overall theme of lawlessness that's occurring. You know, you saw the thing on the train up there in New York with uh, Jordan Neely, and he was a 40 time arrested, four time assault. And, you know, a passenger stepped in to protect others. And who do they arrest? I mean, it's just, it's uh, hard to, it's hard to describe. And, and even if he's exonerated, which I believe he will be, the purpose of that is to cause you to hesitate next time you're involved. Absolutely. And it keeps lawlessness going. And it stokes the fire of the color disparity. Right. right? It was white versus black, and right. that becomes the issue and the narrative. And yeah, you're not it meets allowed, the narrative. Yeah, you're not allowed to engage uh, in a righteous um, in position there, and that's the that's that's a tragedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those are the things that are... Um, showing themselves to be at, at, at play and at work in our, in our land today. And those things are uh, disappointing. And uh, a lot of that has to do, Jim, with <clears throat> depravity. It does. And so uh, we uh, approached today's uh, topic, um, and we, we talked about it last time. We introduced the doctrines of grace and, and TULIP, the five points of Calvinism, the five canons of Dort, however you uh, prefer to refer to them. We just introduced those last time, and then so today we jump into that discussion uh, with using the acronym TULIP, a wonderful way to, to remember it, and uh, T is for total depravity. And so as we approach today's episode, we just want to do a brief summary, though, of what we talked about last week. We're continuing again in our church distinctives, and we're venturing to talk about the doctrines of grace, again, known as the five points of Calvinism or the canons of Dort. And these doctrines are 
reflective of what the Bible teaches, and they are everywhere in the Scripture. I mean, Jim, it's it's hard to open your Bible and just not see these these things, these doctrines, these truths, coloring uh, everything everywhere in the Scripture. Unreal. And even today, as I was getting ready for total depravity, and you and I have talked about how important this one is for setting up the rest, I mean, I think I've got 15 pages of Scripture. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere, and from multiple angles. And so we won't be able to cover it all today. But if you've got follow-up questions, please ask, because this is deep and rich. And I believe this one sets up the rest. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And so this is not a fringe uh, discussion. Right. Uh, this is central, and uh, and it's central to the gospel as well. So yeah, these are really reflective of what the Bible teaches, and uh, you'll, uh, you'll realize how pervasive they are. Last week, we introduced the doctrines of grace, and we identified that Calvin was not the inventor of these truths. Now, he, his name is often attached, but that's because he's really the, the ref reformational leader of revitalizing and, and bringing up these doctrines once again to defend the Christian faith uh, against Arminianism. But th these things go back uh, a long time to an early heretic known as Pelagius, and it was Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, um, or Augustinianism, that beat back the error of Pelagianism, which denied original sin and the corruption of human nature. And see, theology has practical implications. It has downstream effects for other theology as well. And so Arminianism is a semi-Pelagian assault on the doctrines of grace that had been held to by the church for a thousand years. And it was Jacobus, Arminius, and his disciples that sought to challenge and attack the orthodox positions of the church. So they did so with five points of Arminianism. And so no one knows what the five points of Arminianism is. You hear about the five points of Calvinism as if those were novel attacks against the normal, ordinary, and historical Christian understanding of Arminian theology. The reality is that's not the case. It is Augustinianism that had won the day biblically. The church uh, had held to Augustinian principles and doctrines, and it was uh, Arminian, Arminius and really his followers that proposed that the church had been teaching error, and the students of John Calvin answered their objections and, and their accusations with a defense of the historical Christian faith with their five points of Calvinism or contra-remonstrances. Really, it was five points of Calvinism because they were answering the five errors of uh, Arminianism, and uh, or these were the contra-remonstrances, and uh, they were also known, again, as the Canons of Dort. And so those who have studied that debate and the controversy developed the acronym. This, this was not the acronym that was done by the reformers or followers of Calvin. It was really the the study of the history and the debate and the understanding of what took place there developed this acronym TULIP in order to represent the orthodox doctrine that demonstrated those five points of Arminianism are unbiblical. And I think it's helpful because today I think a lot of people, again, as I said just a minute ago, think that Arminianism is the standard and Calvinism is an alien invader that is doing damage to the Bible, and the truth is just the opposite. So today, we begin with TULIP, and the first of the letters is T, and T stands for total depravity. Now, to begin with, we want to work out definitions. That's where we want to start, and I think we should start with depravity, uh, and we'll get to the total in a minute. But what does it mean to be depraved? 
Well, depravity means to be morally corrupt, and it points to our sinfulness and to something that is not pure, and, and, and so something that has been corrupted throughout. And so depravity means that there is a significant flaw that renders that thing either useless or inoperable. And so we think of technology. Uh, Jim, this might be right up your alley here. When a data file is corrupted, it normally means that something has gone wrong with it to the point of not working or being able to use it or to access it. And that's a similar idea of our human depravity. Uh, the files are all corrupt. And that means there's a radical problem with us. Yeah, we would say it's not recoverable, mm. which is applicable. Yes. So No, that's good. And so we're talking about, really, the influence of Adam's original sin. And this goes back to uh, the, the original error of Pelagius denying uh, the impact of Adam's original sin on his posterity, on, on, on humanity. And so uh, we're talking about um, the moral corruption of our nature. Our nature, uh, we would understand the scripture to teach, and we'll get into, into scriptures in a little bit. Our scripture is, excuse me, our nature is broken by sin. And that leads us to then actually be sinners. We are sinners because we are so by nature. Uh, and that means that we are not pure. We are not holy. As natural sons of Adam, we do not comprehend the things of God. That speaks just to the to the totality of our corruption. So important, too. I mean, I think a lot of people get caught up in, well, Adam and Eve still, they still walked with God after that. But justice at that point in the garden in Genesis 3 would have been two dead bodies. I've said that before. And the reality is God's grace and mercy is what was applicable right away. And we see that today. So and yes, and that'll get us to uh, certainly to the gospel and and to what how this is where it goes is uh, this is the downflow of an understanding of depravity right. is then how it then does is mercy and grace appropriated how does a how does a, a person who is a sinner and is depraved how do we get saved and that affects our role in it and it helps us to understand God's role in it and that's where it certainly leads us. Uh, but we need to further define this doctrine, and so that we do so with the word total. And it's really important that we get this right. Total depravity means that we are, mo uh, are morally corrupt, we are broken by sin in every part of our being, meaning total. It means that every part of us, our minds, our will, our affections, emotions, our bodies— Every part of what it means to be a human being is affected by Adam's fall into sin. And that fall means that every natural-born person is a sinner and depraved in every part of our beings. And since we are a sinner in every part, that means that, and, and this is very important, that means that man is totally incapable of coming to God or saving ourselves, right? That, that you already said it, it's, um, it's unrecoverable. Right. Paul says that the natural man does not comprehend the things of God. That speaks to our intellect, our speaking, uh, our thinking. It's corrupted so that natural people cannot understand God or his salvation on our own. He also says that prior to being saved, man is dead in trespasses and sins. So total depravity points to the reality of being spiritually dead, separated, without life with God, 
and we are corrupted and incapable then of coming to God on our own. And so the effects of sin in our nature and our and, and by our actions, they've made our salvation then wholly dependent upon God. If we are totally incapable of saving ourselves because every part of us is corrupted by sin, then that puts the onus of salvation somewhere else. And that's what these doctrines really highlight. We are de- entirely dependent upon God to make us alive. We need to be resurrected. We need to be regenerated out of spiritual deadness and our depravity. And so one of the themes of the Old Testament that is carried over to the New Testament is this idea that people have eyes but cannot see and have ears but cannot hear. And that is speaking about the spiritual deadness, uh, blindness and deafness, the inability of a sinner to respond to the gospel. Our sin, our depravity, has rendered us blind and deaf to the things of God. And so this is all language in the scripture that points to our spiritual condition. And it isn't one of just having bad eyesight that can be corrected by glasses, or having the ability to hear but just needing some hearing aids or of being mostly dead, but not all dead. And I, I can't help but think when I say mostly dead, of uh, Miracle Max and Billy Crystal in the, the best movie of all time, The Goat, Princess Bride, and the funny scene where he says that Wesley is, he's only mostly dead. Now, if he was all dead, there's only one thing left to do, and that's go through his pockets and look for loose change. But scripture teaches that when it comes to our spiritual condition and orientation toward the things of God, We're not partially blind, kind of deaf, and mostly dead. We are blind, deaf, and dead. That's the condition, the spiritual condition of every human being naturally born of Adam. We are totally and radically depraved. And the key element of being depraved, it renders mankind unable to comprehend or to respond to the proclamation of the gospel. And therefore, it means that we don't participate in our salvation. Uh, we only respond to the sovereign work and love of God when he determines to save a sinner. And to me, one of the most beautiful pictures of that in the Bible is when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And what did Lazarus do to raise himself from the dead? What did Lazarus do to come alive? Uh, he just simply, uh, he was given life and he just walked out. Right. And, and that's a, just a wonderful thing that it was all of Christ. It was all of his work. It was all of his command. And when, when new life entered his body, he just breathed and lived. Yeah, it wasn't even obedience. It was just life. It was just life. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's such a, an important element to understand and realize what's at play, what's going on when we talk about depravity and how that points us to the work has to be entirely of God when we understand who we are. Now, our definitions matter, and so a a significant point of clarification then is that we do not believe the Bible teaches utter depravity. So we say total, not utter. And so every once in a while I've I've slipped and and say we're utterly depraved, and it just means just how, how much we are depraved. But um, the, the proper use terminology is total depravity, because that speaks to every part of man being corrupted. But utter depravity, which we do not uh, believe in, utter depravity is the error that sees mankind as not only every part being corrupted, 
but that man is as corrupt as possible, that everything man does is entirely evil. And we know that's not the case, and we know that that's not uh, actually true. Um, that's not what the doctrine of total depravity teaches, and I think that's what a lot of people um, mischaracterize it as. Yeah, I mean, Psalm 143, I like this. It says, no one living is righteous before you. Well, we're still living. We're still living, so we're still participating. We're dead we're, men walking. We're dead men walking, though. We are not righteous before God. No one. So, Yeah, so we would say that the grace of God does not actually allow mankind to be as bad or as evil as possible, that, that man has the capacity for utter depravity, but it's actually the restraining grace of God uh, the common grace of God, that man is kept from being utterly depraved. And that's why when things go get really bad, God turns over man to more of our depravity to where we continue to do what our nature uh, um, wants to do. But the, the depravity, is a, it's a corrupting influence with the primary emphasis of the doctrine on man's inability to choose. That's really the emphasis of the whole thing, Jim. It's it's pointing to the inability because of depravity to participate or to save ourselves. Our inability then is to respond to the gospel without the regenerating grace and work of the Holy Spirit. You have to be made alive right. in order to believe. It's our innermost being, and the, the, the model there is the heart. We see this so often in Scripture where the, the heart is deceitful. Well, it's yeah, it's the heart, but it's speaking of, your inner, you said, our, our innermost being, yeah, like everything that we yourself. are about. Yeah, absolutely. So when we really understand then our sinfulness and our depravity, then what, we, what we've already been alluding to is that all the other doctrines of grace fall into place. If you deny, though, the full extent of original sin, then you think that you are not quite as bad as you really are, that you're only kind of corrupt, but or that there's some things that are corrupt, but other things that have been not touched to the point of inability, but they still maintain a goodness or, in, or, or at best a neutrality, wherein the, the sinner is then able to participate in his own salvation, uh, able to choose. We'll get into that in just a minute. But you give yourself, we end up giving ourselves more credit than we really deserve. And you know, when we're in the business of giving ourselves credit, we know we're we, we know we're getting off track. Yeah, this goes to lordship, but it's so much more than that. It impacts every other area. You know, it impacts stewardship because now a part of what I'm doing is me instead of God blessing what I'm doing. And it's just, a, it impacts every area of our walk. So, so important in my view to get this right for a lordship view and a correct view of the rest of TULIP. Absolutely. And yeah, we'll get to even a, a, a practical application further of that in a, in a little bit. But what happens is, is you begin to think that you contributed or cooperated in your salvation rather than seeing that the faith that you have to believe in Christ is itself a gift of God. And that's where people, I think, get off or misunderstand is this is in this area of where does faith come from? Well, there's really only two options. It either comes, it's generated from within yourself. It, it is something that you contribute to your salvation. Or faith is from God, that just like in the case of Lazarus, he just lived. He just believed and heard and followed and walked out of the tomb. Uh, it wasn't anything that he did for himself. He didn't have faith to become alive. He became alive and he walked out. He, he obeyed Christ's voice. 
And in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, for, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. We know that faith is that, that vehicle of um, receiving, saving faith. And that, this is such so key, and that, well, what's the, what's the that that's being pointed to here? The that that's being pointed to here is the faith. And that faith is not of yourselves. It, the faith, is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I think that's where people, they're very familiar with that verse, but they don't stop to think of what is Paul referring to as the gift. And the gift is the faith. We're saved by grace through faith. And reminder, that faith is not of you. It didn't come out of you. It didn't, uh, you didn't work for it. It isn't a work. It is something that which is really just a response to the grace of God. So God determined that man would have no grounds for boasting in our salvation. And that means that you and I do not get any credit or glory for being saved because salvation from beginning to end, from election to faith to glorification, the whole works is a work of God within us. And so I think this is, a, this is maybe the most misunderstood idea. And that, again, even the faith to believe in Christ is a gift. And I think most people think that our faith, our belief, and our trust in Christ and in his gospel, it's something that I do on my own. It's unaided and uninfluenced. Uh, I'm independent of anyone or anything else, but simply upon my own ability to choose to believe. And this doctrine of total depravity points to the scripture that says, basically, brother, even your faith, that's a gift. It's a gift of God. Faith is not your good work, your own uncorrupted ability to choose and to believe. If that were the case, then that would mean that you would believe there are parts of you that are not corrupted by sin. The file is not corrupt. It just has some, you know, misspelled words in it. <laughs> your intellect, your mind, your will, your ability to make good choices, after all, Choosing Christ is the best of choices, so you're saying that sin hasn't corrupted your files. They still work just fine so that you are good enough to do the good thing of putting your faith in Jesus. Isn't it a good thing to put your faith in Jesus? Well, of course it is. Well, that would mean that you have something good within you to be able to choose the good thing or to work the good work of faith. And Paul, uh, I think my, my, this is my favorite Greek word, um, for how he thinks of this line of reasoning, reasoning, it's uh, the great Greek word, Jim, baloney. Uh, that's that's junk meat. It's unbelievable. Uh, Vody Bauckham likes to say that dog won't hunt. Uh, Ephesians two eight says that faith is a gift, and we have to wrestle with that, and we have to make sure that we are conforming our minds to the Scripture, um, not the Scripture to our minds. Yeah, First Corinthians twelve says no one can say Jesus is Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except, except in the Holy Spirit. Yep. And that's the whole point. That's right. That's right. It's a work of God. So if you're a believer, you say Jesus is Lord. Where did it come from? Yep. Not from you. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's my next passage in Matthew 16. Jesus is questioning the disciples. And he says in Matthew 16, 15 and 17, he says, uh, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Great answer, Peter. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood 
did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, good job, you're right, but just know that you didn't determine that on your own. God had to reveal it to you. In other words, God had to give Peter new spiritual eyes to see. He had to have new spiritual ears to hear. He had to have his old spiritual heart of stone removed, and he had to be given a new heart of flesh. Why? Because we are corrupt in every part, rendering us incapable of coming to Christ on our own. And I got to be careful here. I'll just start preaching. (laughs) But it's one of those things where you have to recognize, how did Peter believe that? Well, because God gifted him the ability to believe that. Yeah, I'm thinking, same old Peter. No, not same old Peter. At that moment, different Peter. Different, at least in this area, and growing. That's right. So That's right. Not same old. And the reality of his being kept is that because of this, uh, his election, we'll get to that at a future date, but because of God's love for him, from because of the gift that God had given him that he received, that means that... Uh, Christ prayed for Peter that even though Satan wanted to have him, uh, God said, no, he's mine. I pray for his faith won't, won't fail. And if God is praying to God that our faith doesn't fail, you can bet that our faith doesn't fail. And because that faith is not from us, it is from God in the first place, and, and therefore what we have remains because look, if it were up to me to believe, prone to wander, I would be out, I would I would wander away from the Lord as well. If I could choose to get in, you bet I would end up choosing to get out. And that's uh that's the beauty. So again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's the downstream that's the effect. Beauty of this. Yes. That's the beauty of it. It's it yes, security. you're depraved, but yes, God is the one supplying it. What a beautiful picture. Right. No offense, but I wouldn't want anything like that from you, Danny. <laughs> I mean, that's just why would we why would we lower ourselves? I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. The security then is not in my choice. Right. And not in my will, but in God's to save and in God's to keep. And that's where it, that's where it belongs. Uh, so let's just take a few minutes and let's just go deeper into the scriptures to show how this doctrine was developed historically by godly men in the church, men like Augustine and Calvin and many others. And uh, for uh, me, I I picked up on Romans chapter 5, and in verses 12 through 19, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that one man is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we have there in verse uh, 12, the reality of sin and being passed on to the rest of mankind from our federal head, Adam. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin did not was is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, 
as through one transgression there resulted condemnation uh, of all, let's see, where am I? Condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So notice that Adam is the representative of the human race. And we've talked before about federal headship. And so Adam, being the father of the human race, the first man, he sinned not just for himself, but he sinned for the whole race. His sin was counted against or imputed to all of his offspring. Federalism or federal headship is not a foreign idea for, to us. In even other contexts, for instance, government leaders, they make treaties or agreements with other nations that are binding upon all their citizens. So the governors represent the nation and what the one person decides, they affect the, they affect the lives of the living, but also of those yet to be born who will be born into the land of an existing agreement that is still binding upon them. So even though uh, many people alive today were, of course, not alive at the drafting of the Constitution. Nevertheless, the Constitution is still binding uh, uh, for uh, because those representatives, those forefathers, uh, represented and established for us the terms uh, that we live under. So this means that before we even are conscious of the law or before we even commit a single sin, the penalty of that original sin was already upon us because Adam, our representative, sinned. So were you there when Adam ate the forbidden fruit? Yes, you were. Original sin brings with it the guilt and death penalty of Adam upon all humanity. That's what Paul is pointing out. And his sin was imputed or counted against the whole human race by one man's sin. That's the power, again, of federal headship. And we are grateful that through the work of the one man, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins were counted against or imputed to him and his righteousness was counted toward or imputed to those he represented. And so he is not the representative of the whole human race. He is the head of all the people of faith. He is the representative head of all the elect, so that uh, of really a new humanity. He is the head of a new humanity. And so everyone who is in Christ has his work imputed to them. Having the guilt of Adam upon us, which is sufficient to condemn us and for which we need a savior, Adam's nature is also passed to us by natural birth. By virtue of being an Adam, and, and we are Adamites, mankind, our human nature, is a sinful nature. We do not need to be taught to sin. If you doubt that, you need to have children. But we are not neutral beings. And then we come to a fork in the road to sin or not to sin, and that we have the autonomous, unaffected free will as opposed to a sin nature to choose good, and thereby it is possible to be a sinless person if we only choose the good thing. Scripture denies that first part. Scripture teaches that we are sinners by nature from conception. At the point of our humanity, it, it, is, it is the presence of, sin, of a sinful disposition. That's our nature. And so, Jim, that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 51.5 and 58.3, the recognition of, of in sin— my mother consumed me. That doesn't mean that 
uh, mom was involved in sin at my conception, it means at my conception, I was a sinner because that's the nature of being conceived as a natural, um, a naturally conceived human being. Yeah. I think living under this common grace, I think the world's still living under God's common grace. It actually demonstrates that they're trying to take credit for things that are good. So they'll say things like, oh, well, he's a good person or he desires to do good things. And the reality is, is none of that is from themselves. Mm-hmm. None of it. So, you know, that desire is a big word out there. It's, it's this feeling, oh, they're good people deep down inside. And the answer is no. Scripture not. denies that. Right. Now, we would be thankful that they're not utterly depraved. That's the grace of God that right. works commonly. That's what you're, what you're saying. Um, but it's not because they're actually truly good by nature. Right. Um, we're not neutral. We're not good. We're depraved. We actually take credit for God's sovereign hand of control over goodness. This is what we do. We say, look what we did. That's from me. Right. Yeah. No, that that's that's terrible. Well, let's look uh, at Paul's description further of the sinfulness of man and the extent of our depravity. And we'll see why we say and understand it to be total. Romans chapter 3, I'll read verses 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And we'll stop right there for even just, if you just think about it, if man is neutral or man is good, how is it that how is it that that no one was able on their own to be righteous? And because the declaration is not one. And there's, there's been billions and billions of people throughout human history. And the, the verdict of scripture is not one of them, if they were being neutral or good, ended up in a position of righteousness. You have to account for that. Verse 11, there is none who understands. Well, that's one problem. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so really the tendency of man is to minimize our own sin and guilt and our corruption, the sinfulness of our hearts is to think that we are not as bad as we really are. And which is it? That, or, or what is that? That is the sin of pride, right? That's what Jim was just saying. We end up taking credit for the things that are actually God's grace even commonly. And so we think much more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And that is such a key element Paul says that also in Romans chapter 12 and elsewhere, the reality of, of when we understand depravity, that should have a radical effect on how we view ourselves and whether we see ourselves highly or whether we see ourselves properly. Because the problem is we think we're smart, we think we're capable, and we are not as corrupt as God says. We don't think we're actually dead, and we think that we have the power and the goodness within ourselves to make a good and a clear decision to receive Christ. When the reality is we are totally unable to come to Christ on our own because of our corruption, and we are totally dependent upon God then to save us from beginning to end. It's all of grace, and that's so that God gets all the glory, and he tells us so. When we understand this, then we will truly grasp who we are and our own sinfulness, We will begin to appreciate then the greatness of our salvation 
and the glory of God. And these doctrines of grace, one practical outlet uh, for this understanding, Jim, is our worship. This is very important for us to worship properly, isn't it? It really is. It's unbelievable. And I think a lot of times we'll think we want to do things to please God. And that idea of if I do good, then I am pleasing God. Reality is Hebrews 11 tells us that the only way to please God is through faith. Where does faith come from? It's from God. It's back to he, this is all God for God just working in us. He's glorifying himself through his right. creatures and how he sanctifies us reflects back to him his goodness. We are blessed participants. That's right. And these are important also for our humility. We've already kind of touched on that a bit. Uh, they're also important. This is a key thing in my mind today is um, it's important for our own ability to forgive other people. There's a real practical sense of these doctrines. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Why should we be forgiving of each other? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So when you understand your depravity, when you understand how sinful you are and how incapable of, of earning God's forgiveness, of contributing to your own salvation, when you understand how unable we are and how sinful we actually are, then it makes forgiving others possible. Um, do you know why you should be forgiving of others when they have sinned? And sometimes they sin big against you. How can someone forgive other people? It's because you understand how much and how big of a sinner you are and how much of a sinner you are relates to how much you've been forgiven. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you, how you had nothing to do with it, but that God in Christ has forgiven you by sheer grace, how can you not forgive your neighbor then? Maybe you don't think you're as bad of a sinner and have been forgiven as much as you have been forgiven. How can you understand your sin and God's grace and withhold then forgiveness from someone else? So in the study of the doctrine of total depravity, it actually leads us to the practical understanding and application of forgiving one another. It's actually you, a necessity. Absolutely. It, it's, it's a requirement. Like if you're holding on to not forgiving... It means it's, that you haven't understood the gospel and re recognized what forgiveness is all about in the first place. Then it becomes a piece of what you do or what you're what you're about, and the reality is, is we're not about anything. Yeah, that's why we love again the doctrine of total depravity. Not because we love our sin. <laughs> we don't love total, the doctrine of total depravity because we love our sin, right. uh, or we love condemning others, but because we understand our condition, and we begin to understand the greatness of our salvation by grace from a sovereign God uh, who loves us and who totally rescues us, to right? Totally speaks to the totality of every part of our beings, body and soul. We've talked about that recently in terms of the difference between uh, Gnostic thinking, uh, a dualism between the body and soul that you know, uh, the, the body and the flesh is bad, but the soul is redeemable. No, he, he, he redeems all of us, body and soul. The greatness of our salvation from God is that every part of us, he redeems and rescues and from eternal death that we might have eternal life. So he gets then all the glory 
And our worship then is rightly placed and it is more robust, it is full, because we understand who we are. When you understand how much you've been forgiven, then worship rises to higher heights. Well, that's all the time that we have for Truth Today. We want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and His Church as we are sanctified in the truth. God's Word is truth.